mind if I sit down? Everything you pray for, everything you play for me. Hi, and welcome to Be More Now. My name is Blake Moore, and tonight I'm interviewing poet Lucinda Watson. Watson's new book, The Favorite, comes with great praise from many luminaries, including the former presidential poet under Obama. A now-retired professor at the Haas Business School at UC Berkeley, Watson's diverse perspective lends a hint of memoir to her collection of poems, poems that transport the reader on a narrative journey from childhood to senior citizenship. But first, here's a couple of perspectives from Mendocino High School poets Jaron Hodder and Ethan Foster. Both of these poems were written in the last two weeks during a residency that I was teaching at Mendocino High School in Andy Wells' World History class. My name is Jaron Hodder, and this poem is titled Revolver. Modern man is a modern myth. We taste the crave of silent bliss, kissed by the veil of death, but held up on our own undying breath. We take and give, but never receive. We've forgotten our mountains and trees, clogged up our rivers and streams with streams of football and political games, where there are no winners, and there is no shame, where no one knows who to blame because everyone out there is always the same. Division over equality, that's not what this means to me. The fact is we care more about making sure the other guy's wrong than assuring them their liberty. It's all a conspiracy, but what's the use? You can't fix a problem when you don't know you're being abused. Human's greatest triumph may be empathy. Human's greatest weakness may be lack of organization. But human's greatest failure is hatred. Thank you. My name is Ethan Foster, and I will be reading my poem, Bacon Pancakes. We sit here twiddling our thumbs as the world around us goes. We sit here dreaming and hoping and yearning for more. Yet all this wanting and planting of seeds of ideas grow. We create a life, a goal, the reality we want, more. We spend our life looking for answers to life. (laughs) With this ideology, we have to find why we are. What put me here and why? What's my purpose to this vast abyss? We are not our arms or hair or our hearts or even our words. I am but a single entity, a single consciousness experiencing itself. We know of no other high intelligent life forms. We are a bundled group of carbon atoms floating around in space of no rules or control. Everything is generated at random, or so we believe. If we are just small organisms on a tiny planet in a tiny galaxy of unfathomable expansion, why is it so important to find who we are? By human nature, we are curious creatures. We have the urge to expand our knowledge and manifest our desires. Coming of age is not a transfer to adulthood, no. It is a greater understanding, an open door to more mysteries. The immersion of self-awareness in a life we know nothing. We shoot for the stars not to achieve great things, but because we can't bear not to. Thank you. Thank you, Jaron and Ethan. Important to have those perspectives coming out on the airwaves. Our youth are speaking. So before I bring on Lucinda Watson, 
Like always, I want to tell you a bit about her background. Lucinda Watson has worked as a teacher, a healer, a volunteer, a naturalist guide, a storyteller, and a board member of a few nonprofits, sometimes all at once. Watson worked for more than 10 years at the University of California, Berkeley's Haas School of Business, teaching communication skills to the MBA population and recruiting business leaders to speak at the school. Prior to working at Haas, she taught at San Francisco State University and the University of San Francisco. She is now a full-time poet and devotes her time to volunteering with kids in local schools and a commitment to causes that focus on women and children. Her poetry has been published in the Stickman Review, the Louisville Review, Jelly Bucket, Healing Muse, Poet Lore, The Round, Linwood Review, Penman Review, and others. She was nominated in 2017 for a Pushcart Prize. Here's a conversation that took place a couple of weeks ago. I'm here talking with Lucinda Watson. I'm really happy you're here with me on Be More Now. Well, thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. I always love talking about my work. Yes, right? Why don't you start us off by sharing a poem so the audience gets a glimpse to your style and voice? I would be happy to. So I grew up in Connecticut where we had uh, a road called the Merritt Parkway, which seemed to take us everywhere. And I wrote this poem um, because it's such a strong memory of my family getting in the car, going to visit my grandparents. And the poem is called Road Trip. We are all naked in the back seat of a 1957 Plymouth station wagon in late June in Connecticut. The sticky, shiny plastic has cracks that bite us. My mother says it's 87 and counting. No one is saying a word. White dresses are layered like doll clothes across the way back, and I can hear them crackle against each other as we do at home. We are all too hot, but Mom says, sit still as she drives, her flamenco skirt fanned around her, the wagon slithering like a snake up the Merritt Parkway, We are visiting Grandfather, and since we are never clean enough, we'll be hauled out at a rest stop to be straight-jacketed into dresses and our mother's hope for acceptance after nine years, six children, five daughters, and one son who rides shotgun and wears what he wants. (laughs) That sums it up so great. He wears what he wants. We're all starched and, and miserable. <laughs> He's got his feet up on the dashboard in the front seat doing whatever he wants, you know. Those were the days. Thank oh God that doesn't happen anymore. Well, you know, that's kind of what I wanted to say is just congratulations on this marvelous book of poems. Because what I see is it not only frames the journey from girlhood into womanhood, is it's obviously a heroine's journey because you feel that, but it also refuses to stop at the, what I quotes my bunny quotes, the prime of womanhood. 
and instead it you know really lifts the curtain on how life continues to meander and actualize into its own midlife and maturity and this is so refreshing because i know myself and so often women you know we receive the message that life stops over when we're over 40 Mm -hmm. since that contemporary youth driven culture puts us out to pasture, but you totally go around that. And the way that the book progresses, you show that that's when we really start having our profound discoveries and, and can actually make more of an impact when we take those discoveries out into the world. And I'm curious, did you deliberately create the collection as an expedition through life via poetic exploration instead of a memoir? Is that, what, what made you make that choice? Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think that as a poet, um, it's difficult because people assume, number one, uh, and you have to excuse me because I'm going to answer you obliquely, (laughs) but I will get there. People assume that it is memoir, but the wonderful thing about poetry is you can take a moment in time. Just, I mean, some people just do this and automatically and others don't. But for me, I hear a phrase or I see something that makes you reminded of a situation. So, of course, you take that situation and start to write about it, but then you don't necessarily stick to it. It's whatever it turns into that, that's interesting. So I've been writing poetry all my life, but I started seriously writing it in my 40s, and I'm now 71. So finally, I think in my 50s or 60s, I started sending it out to be published. So I had a pretty good collection of poems, and I have a long dining room table. And I took the poems that were really important to me that I wanted to include in the book, and I just laid them out on the table so I could see what kind of order they would be in. And miraculously, the order just found itself because there were so many childhood poems and then kind of a middle-aged period poems and then this series of awakening poems. And I thought, okay, that's it. That's what's going to make sense. And I really, um, I really feel that when you're writing a book or when you're doing anything, you want, I mean, I have a lot of, of younger friends because I used to teach, and I'm so grateful for their presence in my life. And I'm also constantly amazed at how many times they ask me for advice. So for me, writing the book was like, okay, I've been through this. Um, you know, I, yeah, I I'm real. I'm real. I screwed up so many times. Just like you're doing right now. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so that's how, how it came about. I just thought it's a, it's a logical progression. That's what it was for me. I like that. And I think that as a poet, say you take various poetic license by, I mean, I know I'm a poet also, and I might blend experiences, but the emotion and the imagery for me is straight up memoir to some degree. You know, it's my mm-hmm. own, it, it comes from your own experience. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I think kind of all poetry has that reflection of a memoir mm-hmm. anyway. 
And But I think that the difference with poetry is there's a way that you can reveal yourself and still remain intact, so to speak. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Okay. I mean, sometimes, I, I don't know about you, uh, but sometimes I wrote, write poems so that are like, they're nothing to do with me. I don't know where they come from. <laughs> well, well, I mean, I, I mean, I do do rants, but I think they still have a lot to do with me. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little fond of ranting sometimes, but yeah. <laughs> I wrote this poem over the weekend because I got marooned at a motel in Missoula, Montana. Do you, can I read it? Oh, I was going to say you have to. Okay. So here's where I stepped out of character. (laughs) Okay, it's called the Stone Creek Motel. You always think you're going home, and then you find yourself suddenly at the only roadside motel that takes dogs on a Sunday night in Missoula, having stopped at the liquor store to buy a bottle of wine and some Pringles. Out the window of room 208, you can see the inconsistent glint of Highway 90 heading east, and you understand why you always wanted to be a trucker. In a minute, you're in that truck cab, hustling down that highway, your furball dangling from the rearview mirror, wearing tight jeans and someone's T-shirt, headed for that lineman in Wichita County, slamming the gear shift up and down and checking your Colt 45 under your seat at rest stops. Or you could take the job listed on the board in the lobby of the Stone Creek Motel. Deer cleaner, 12 bucks for the bucks. Seasonal work. Get yourself a rubber apron and a sharp knife and go to town. You always want other people's jobs. The night goes on and you feel comforted by your new friends, Marge and Tiny, her great Dane, as you settle down in the lobby in the brand spanking new chairs, setting up your Pizza Hut box and six-pack of wine alongside Marge and Tiny with their feast of Wendy's double burgers washed down with Zapple. Marge asks where you are from, and for a moment you have no answer. But she forgets what to say. And then she talks about her granddaughter in Des Moines. Marge is nice enough. She's wearing the last pair of pink polyester pants on earth. At some time, there was a daisy chain down the side of each pant leg, but some have fallen off into the vastness of Marge's yesterdays. You could be anywhere. You could step into Marge's life in a second, take Tiny out and shovel shit for days. Marge knows what she's going to do tomorrow, and you have no idea. <laughs> I know. So, so there you go. Yes. I have a, I have a poem that's um, wall stranded at a Motel 6 in Albuquerque. So oh. I have a very similar sort of... <laughs> I want to see that. <laughs> I'll, I'll make sure I send it to you because it's okay. another one of those, um, you know, it's that when you're, when you're someplace outside of your world and you just get to be kind of like an astronaut, right? You travel in and then, of course, we project our reality all over everything. So it is so much us. That's just a, that's a wonderful poem. Yeah. Oh, thanks. And what were you doing, us? Uh, 
Oh, I, I went. I went. We took a COVID vacation. You know, where you drive a long way yeah. and get someplace, and then you're. Um, and the the flight was canceled, and they they had no way. the The airline was too small, a little plane. So they just said, "Well, find yourself a place to stay." So we got in the van and we found the place, and um, it was. I love motels, actually. I, I was thinking a really interesting book would be to go stay in the same motel for like a week and every night go downstairs and meet someone new right? and just write about it because people are so fascinating to me. I bet they are to you, too. Oh, absolutely. I have this dream of someday doing that, something like that, just in Morocco because I love the Moroccan culture so much and I just... I'm always fascinated by how people are just so unique and so different and the people you encounter. I've spent, you know, just pockets of time in places, but I completely agree. So I'm curious about you in that how did you pick, you know, you got your book divided into three sections. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about yourself in those sections and maybe share a poem from each of those sections? Sure. I'd be happy to. Um, well, first I was a, incredibly shy child. <laughs> so I remember my mother, we, I come from a family of six, and you know, my mother was always, why don't you want to go to so-and-so's house and do such and such? And you know, all I really wanted to do was stay home and read. That would have been the perfect day for me, but obviously we can't let our children do that all the time. Um, and I... Uh, my childhood poems are, are there are a lot of poems about hiding and about adventures in nature and um, I think because I that's I'm just very grateful because the other day I was talking to my daughter who's in LA and I looked out the window and there was just this incredible bird that flew by so I said oh, I wish you were here. I could show you this bird. It's so beautiful. And she said, you know, Mom, that's one of the biggest gifts you gave me is that you would stop our lives to show us some kind of natural beauty. Mm. And I think to get that compliment, it meant so much to me, you know. Um, And I think if you have that gift, someone, my mom gave it to me. So if you have it, you can always be distracted by beauty and it, it takes you out of whatever you may be experiencing, be it negative or positive, but it's a wonderful gift to connect with the world and, and to notice, you know, the Buddhist thing, notice, notice, notice. And yeah, so I think that's what I did as a child. I'm sure you did too, right? We, yeah. And you don't always realize you're doing it until later and you reflect back. And for me, I recognize my connection with plants and that was always a kind of an escape place for me. It was a place I could go in and be completely accepted and thoroughly absorbed. So, yes. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Southern California, oh, Los Angeles. Yeah, beautiful the, um, uh, gardens and stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, that tropical desert, you oh, know, that man-made yeah. tropics kind of an environment is where I grew up. And we mm-hmm. had, you know, the the passion flowers and the bird of paradise, all the kind of classic bougainvillea and those classic flowers of the warmer climates, you know, so it was special. 
And so then the second section for you, so you went from being that child and that, why don't you read another poem from the first section? Okay, I'd be happy to. This is one of my favorites. It's called Across the Pond. I used to take the old red canoe after school before my brother got it and find freedom on the pond though it was covered in algae and fingers of weeds that grabbed you from under. Out I would go, a silent paddler, learned at midnight when humans slept, dipping into the dark water with a perfect arc of stroke, a sliver of silver, a flash of speed, Pocahontas with no braids, paddling to the island floating on the lake with birch trees like antennas, poking up to the sky. I was invisible. The canoe always found its shelf under trees who bent down to cover me, and my hand took the frayed gray rope held before by prior escapees and wrapped a bowlin around the harsh white and black of the bark on the tree trunk. I was safe. Utterly still on the verdant moss, velvet skin to caress, lying back softly. My hair was green. My hands were green. The camouflage was working. It always worked. No one could find me here. The birches were wrapped in paper bark with messages underneath like ancient Greek tablets only I could translate. Sometimes it took all afternoon. I was a stubborn child, and waiting was my middle name. Small and large ants crisscrossed my bony ankles like feathers against skin. A snake came and went. There was a bird call. The island was so still, nothing could move it off its anchor. I learned everything I know from that bark. Well, that's exactly what I was talking about. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, huh? Yeah, you know, it's that thing where someone mentioned how poets can often, it comes from a, I want to say, you know, it, I hear it all the time, a traumatic place or from suffering or whatever else. And I think that there is a level of, of inherent, I guess it's loneliness or longing for a connection that sends us into the natural world in the ways that it happens, I think, because you just you, you get that reflected back. That's a beautiful poem. I love that. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. I love that memory. I mean, it's, don't you have those just amazing... Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we're so lucky. I feel like we're so lucky because especially in today's world where it's so difficult to have that sense of peace or joy or magic and it's just wonderful that we that we that we have that yeah that we had those elements of freedom even though at the time we didn't realize how free we really were you know there's that element of it as well but i do think that i think that everybody has those feelings with nature but one of the gifts of a poet is you get to you get to talk about it for everybody else oh that's how i feel oh yeah that's it you know i'm sure how many times have you had someone who's read a poem or listened to you read and just be in so much gratitude that you can express something that they were feeling but didn't hadn't quite put the words together for it so that's the magic of that 
Yeah, what about your... I was just going to say um, I was lucky enough a couple of times to study with um, Sharon Olds. And oh. I find her poetry so incredible. I'm, yeah. I, it's so visceral mm-hmm. uh, that I, I, find, I just love it. And also Richard Blanco, who is, was Obama's inaugural poet, um, I've studied with him as well. And I, I love their stories because you're just in this little moment, you're swept up, and it doesn't matter if it's about Richard's Cuban family coming to Florida on a vacation and dragging food containers through the lobby. <laughs> I mean, somehow, you know, we all have those funny memories. And um, I just, I love, I love his work. I think he's fabulous. And, and he also loves yours on the back jacket of your book. He gave you a very, very nice recommendation. Yes, he did. He's a generous fellow um, and, a, and a charming guy. He's uh-huh. also really handsome, which helps. <laughs> <laughs> I can't well, help it. I'm yeah, a right. well, for a I, I noticed that you have a couple poems in your third section that, that, that speak to that in this really wonderful way about your own personal desires and how they don't go away no matter how old you are. No. You just express them differently. <laughs> and that's so wonderful. So why don't you talk a little bit about the second section before I jump off to the third, just because I'm linear that way. The poems change their tone in the middle section. Why don't you talk a bit to that and also what you were doing during that time of your life? So I think, you know, that was when I had just gotten divorced. I was working at a business school teaching communication. And, you know, I had gotten married when I was in my early 20s. So here I was, 45, suddenly single. And I, it never occurred to me how difficult it would be to find someone to fall in love with because the f- first man I fell in love with, after a year, he said, I'm going back to my wife, mm. even though they'd been divorced. And so I kind of had this like constant analysis going on of like, okay, what can I do? What should I be doing? Um, thinking way too much about men and what they could bring me and why didn't I have one and what was wrong with me. And then I would meet one that I would actually like and it would be so stressful to have that kind of relationship where you're like, oh my God, is he going to call? I mean, when I think about the time of, amount of time I spent thinking about men, if I'd spent it working, I would have been so much better off. <laughs> between that role, which was, uh, you know, the, the scheme my parents had invented for me, right. and what I really wanted to do, which was work and, you know, be, be accomplished and do something um, that was important in the world and, you know, somehow help other people. So I think that time was a, was a time trying to find out exactly what that would be. Right, want to want to read a poem to that, something from that section that speaks sure. to some of what you just brought up. Yeah, I'll read this one. It's called the favorite. <laughs> As a matter of fact, the title of my book. <laughs> the title. Yes. Okay, 
the favorite. I was the favorite, the pretty one, the one chosen to travel on long trips and to sleep in his room while everyone else stayed home. Once my mother dressed me up like the woman he was sleeping with. I'm still not sure what the prize was. My sisters thought I had won. This man my mother found for me said to me last week that older men were better off than older women as they could be with much younger women, while the same was not true for women. Women just don't measure up over time, he said. In certain cultures, mirrors are shrouded, and women never see the light of day. Men rape women on court orders and have friends come along. Each morning I examine the freshness of my face, the fading of my footprints, the smooth other side of the bed. Hmm. Yeah, it just says so much, doesn't it? I want to take a moment and remind you that you're listening to Be More Now here on KZYX. I'm your host, Blake Moore, and I'm speaking with poet Lucinda Watson. Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes I'm just so stunned by... A lot has changed in my generation. Don't get me wrong. But there's so much more to change. Yeah. I think we just, you know, had a great uh, inaugural time, and it's very encouraging to me that we have a woman of color vice president. Very important. Yeah. And so, you know, wonderful. Um, But there's still so much more because the... The whole idea of, I mean, I I can't tell you the amount of times in my life where men have tried to take advantage or I've noticed that I've been treated differently when I was working because of what I did, what I was paid, and how long it took me to speak up, um, which was way too long. But I, I am encouraged about it, but it's funny I have a wonderful friend who's also a writer, and you know she wrote this book recently, and she said, "I'm so angry. I never realized how angry I was." And she's 78. Mm-hmm. And I just found it so interesting because I feel like women in my generation are finally able to say that, and they're also able to laugh. And it's kind of like you're you're angry, but you also think it's there's something really entertaining about what's happening in life. I mean, I think that you have to find maybe a joy in it or something about it entertaining because in our own way, those of us of the generations that uh, we we were complicit by our acquiescence. Yes. And when we silenced ourselves, we silenced all the women around us, especially those of us. I I was an economics major and um, I... Almost, and I started off doing stuff in finance before I just stopped my whole life and shifted into being an artist full time. And it was, I was a big disappointment to my, you know, I want to say my father, especially, you know, that did not understand why I wasn't going to go chase the almighty dollar. And I think that as a woman in that world, I realized, and obviously like you, I see your pictures in the book. You've got all these beautiful pictures in the book. But you knew you wielded a certain kind of power because of your beauty. 
and you were able to, your intelligence is what got you there. But then you could kind of, I don't want to say distort it or twist it, but you could kind of lean in and work with it. But in doing that, I think that's what a lot of women don't understand, and I think that's why it's so hard for women when they reach a certain age because that kind of power they don't have anymore. And I see that, you know, they they have even more power, but that part of the power has shifted its, you know, it doesn't have the same, somebody doesn't just say whatever you want because of it. You know, does that make sense to you? Totally. It, It makes total sense, and I find it, I find it really interesting, and um, I, my mother was really a beautiful woman, and uh, she continued to look pretty darn good as she got older, um, but I think having to, to face, and she never had a chance to use her brain, which was also very, a very good brain, but right. you know, the the i think and it's funny you say that i was beautiful i have to tell you i think i spent most of my life thinking i was probably average looking right and that's because i was around men who never uh chose to affirm that side of me which is mm-hmm. good and bad mm-hmm. but it also in our culture as a woman i think and in our house, the, the moral was, looks good, feels bad. And, <laughs> you know, it, that was what was important, is who looked attractive. And I think it is, I made such an effort with my uh, family to have that not be a part of it. Right. But recently I was um, volunteering, teaching a course in cultural humility, at a local college, and um, I found it fascinating because one of my master's degrees is in communication, and it was the interpersonal side of things. So we'd talk a lot about first impressions because I taught people how to interview for for jobs. They'd been paying a lot of money to come to Haas, um, and so they wanted, when they graduated with their MBA, to get a great job, and they. A lot of them were international students. They didn't know how to interview, and that's what I did. But it's very difficult because we judge people on, our, on their first impression without even thinking about it. Within the first you know, 10 seconds, we've checked out that whole person and made a judgment call about trust or not trust, and trust is what makes us want to hire them, some part, some similar something. And... It's it's a really interesting thing to try to <clears throat> make people aware of their inherent bias and to make them look at it in their own life because I think once you're aware of it, then you tend to not want that to be the operating, the driver that you're making yeah. your decisions, you know? Yeah, yeah. But, That's right. It's It's a matter of understanding that you're doing it rather than, well, I don't do that. That's mm-hmm. not something I would do, and mm-hmm. you you go well. I I do it, so I'm at least I'm honest with myself, so mm-hmm. I can undo it. You know, I don't think any of us. I mean, truthfully, who? It's like who can throw the first stone? Who is truly without bias about something? 
and that is that gateway to self-acceptance and then the, the shift. And I, I just want to go back real quick. I was thinking about you said something about women and your mother and yourself and being mm. beautiful and then oftentimes not being mirrored, that part of you not being mirrored back because you were in a man's world. And I think on some level it's harder, you know, men want to, there's a competitive nature that comes in. And if they give it to you for your beauty as well, then it's, even harder and women do what we do to to achieve that and I mean I have a um, you know there's this amazing image going around I'm sure you've seen it it's viral it's um, it's Kamala with uh, Ruby Bridges and she's walking and there's a shadow of the young oh, Ruby, yes. you know and she was yeah. the, the first child to descend to to, mm-hmm. to segregate you know the, the that school in New Orleans mm-hmm. and and that was 1960 and I think that that is so powerful except for the fact that she's wearing stiletto heels. I know. And that, when I saw that, (laughs) I was just like, oh, God, can't you be wearing sensible shoes? Like, I'm one of those people who deform my feet growing up in Los Angeles wearing shoes like that. Mm -hmm. I have bunions to this day that are a direct result from dancing in, you know, three-inch stilettos Mm -hmm. and thinking that was what we did. Mm-hmm. And that really, like, oh, I see this, like, this. so anyway, yes. No, that's so funny because I thought the same thing. And I think Nancy Pelosi also wears yes. uh, very high heels like that. And it, <clears throat> I agree with you 100%. It's just like a message that, oh, God, you know, please don't put that message there. Right. You know, it's just, it's like we have so much ability to transform through those images. And now how many women are going to think, yeah, those heels are powerful. Like I am the, you know, I'm the dominatrix. I can stomp on you with my heels, (laughs) but can you run in them? No. Can you run? You know, like I have a really good friend who was a drag queen and his whole thing was he would always say, if you can't run in these shoes, do not be wearing them. Because, you know, he was the old school that he had to run from people who wanted to beat him up. You know, like it was for reals. And I feel so challenged by the imagery that gets put through that does. And I think that's one of the reasons why I loved your book so much, because you really are speaking to that aspect of, you know, you were at the Haas School of Business at Berkeley, so you were in the business world, and how many women were doing what you were doing? Well, you know, uh, some of those friends that I mentioned earlier, the younger friends, are are my uh, former students there. And, you know, it was what was really interesting to me is I would say most of those women were extraordinarily successful in their lives. They're now in their 50s, the ones that are still um, we're still friendly with. And um, they would question me. You know, I did a lot of stuff. I, I even had people wear their interviewing suit to meet me so I could tell them if I thought it was good or not. And then they would ask me about attractiveness and you know how should I relate to this or that and I said what you had said earlier I would say to them look if some guy is doing the interviewing and you know 
why would you want to play down? Use everything you can. Yeah, use it all. Use it all. I'm so glad yeah. you agree. Well, I mean, that's what that's the way you survive then, you know, like yep. you have to. And it's yep. kind of like, I mean, would a man not use his all? I mean, you're going to use everything you can to get there. I mean, I would say don't use it all to the point where you, you know, you prostitute your body to get something. But right. I had those offers. Yeah. And I had a couple of experiences that were, you know, very, very much Me Too moments yeah. that I, instead of going along, I just stepped out. And that's, you know, I, 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 left, the, I left the environment because I realized there was no way that I was going to be able to change it from within. And it just rattled me to a degree that I didn't want anything to do with it. I don't blame you. That was a tough environment. And I think that men in, that, in those days, they would, I found that they would, challenge me and say the worst things possible to see what my reaction was. And I was really good at just being just as bad as them. You know, I lived with rugby players during college. Like, you couldn't shock me. I knew, like, I saw some of the grossest underbelly of (laughs) that masculine, driven, competitive male, and I could still embrace it. Like, yeah, this is just part of being human. But Mm -hmm. it wasn't necessarily, you know, and they were all my friends. I was definitely not, you know, in the being they they weren't hurting me I should say you know I wasn't I wasn't the recipient of some of their horrible actions I just got to witness it mm-hmm. and that to to me now could I just stand there complicitly witnessing no mm-hmm. you know I at the person I am today couldn't have done that but then I didn't think I had a choice it just was what it was right mhm yeah. You, you know what's interesting is the um I also volunteered before covid at a school in West Marin, and one of these, one of the students asked, we were talking about career day or something, so they asked three policemen, police people, to come to school, and they talked about bullying in the school, and believe it or not, this was only an elementary school, so it seemed odd that there would be bullying, but there was. Right. So they talked about the difference between being an upstander and a bystander. Mm. And I thought, you know, that is a really good point because it speaks to what you just said. You know, we have to be upstanders now. If we see something like that, we have to say that's enough. And it's sometimes very hard to be that person, but, you know... I heard someone, a good friend, um, was talking about a new friend I'd made who happened to be Hispanic. And my friend, who was a male, said something to me at the end of the conversation, like, when are you going to see Jose again? And I was just like, what did you just say? Right. I mean, it was, it's still so appalling to me how people have absolutely no concept of what they're saying um, is your friend was your friend named jose or was that no more, no he was, oh, okay i just wanted to make sure making, i wanted no. to make sure i got it right <laughs> no. was, i'm like was it the tone of his voice or was it actually referring to all mexicans being named jose yeah i get it yeah that yeah right and you i mean did you did you respond or how did yeah. you yeah. yeah i said i said what are you saying you know i couldn't even believe it but um it it, it is really appalling to me it's and that's why i'm so grateful for my 11 years at berkeley because 
you you meet and get to know people from every different ethnicity. Yes. It's a gift. And I was so grateful for, for all of those years because you learn so much. Right. And I think that people just that just stay in their own world, and I do think this is the majority of people. They're born in one town, they live there, they marry there, they, you know, have kids there, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's it's so much better, I think, for people to see and learn and meet a yeah. whole bunch of different people. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that, that's, that that travel allows us to do that, and that's one of the biggest benefits and one of the things that's so hard right now um, in so many ways about COVID. I mean, I feel that travel for me has always opened my eyes up culturally. And, but I feel like in this country now, it's like traveling, you know, every day something yeah. egregiously shocking happens mm-hmm. in the media and the news yeah. and what someone says. And I'm like always amazed. I can't believe that I'm in, the country that I thought that I knew. And, and I think that I don't know your friend who said that about Jose. I know people who are liberals who say that. Like we're, we're getting into this us versus them. And I think it's really important to realize that those people exist in all spectrums of expression and to, to find ways to find our similarities and bring us back together. And I feel that's where women and stories like yours are really important because they challenge us to rethink how we look at the world and how we define ourselves. I think, I think that you're right. I think that because at the end of teaching this course in cultural humility, I, I, had, I mean, I'm now the kind of person that just can't shut up after every class. I'd email the <laughs> teacher, well, this worked, but this didn't work. <laughs> I, think I probably drove her crazy. But I was trying so hard to find a way to get these students who were, you know, very, um, they, ha- they had never really spent much time around different ethnicities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I still don't think you can change somebody's mind, but you can certainly open their mind. And then now the workforce is so much better at making sure people don't ha- feel prejudice or don't feel, you know, that they're the only black person on the floor or whatever. I mean, it's, it's really a good thing that we see those changes. My, um, I don't even know why I'm telling you this story because it has nothing really to do with <laughs> well, I, I was just thinking about that myself. Like, I guess our conversation about your book, I'm, I'm really oh. trying to be a good interviewer, but you're so fascinating. This is such a great conversation. Well, so are you. I feel like I'm just really, <laughs> so <laughs> everyone who's listening is enjoying it as much as we are. <laughs> I want to tell you one funny story, though. In 1996, I was privileged to be invited to a conference to, in Vietnam and it was called Missed Opportunities, and Robert McNamara was there and Nick Katzenbach, and they were discussing on a daily basis the different decisions that were made during the Vietnam War. And it was so interesting because there is Robert McNamara who is constantly interrupting the Vietnamese who are speaking, who, who you know, communicate as a group, and then one person gives their answer. Um, and then one day, anyway, I, we got the day off, and there were only two other women there. So I said, let's take a cab, only one cab in Hanoi at that time, and go look at all the sites. So 
we look, we go see fascinating places. It was an amazing day, and we get home, and I said to these two women, we're all dressed alike, you know, with long skirts and long sleeve shirts, I said, I don't get it. We just spent the whole day looking at um, different things in Hanoi. Everyone's staring at me, and no one's staring at you. And this woman looked at me, and she said, Lucinda, we're Asian. <laughs> Like, hello. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I shouldn't laugh so hard. But I never, I mean, honest to God, it it just shows I am a little bit of a space cadet. You just, yeah, yeah. You didn't even realize that was why they were watching you. That's that's a nice story. But I think that that also speaks to your own, that, that you weren't, oh, my God, they're all staring at me because I'm the, 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 the white woman in this world, you know, you were actually just being yourself and, and comfortable there. So you were confused. Why are they looking at me? I, I drive an art car and I have friends that drive with me in my car. And I've had one of my friends, I, I've had it happen many times that someone's like, why are people staring at us? And you're like, oh, yeah, I'm in an art car. Yeah, that's why you're getting stared at. That happened. Well, wait, so what, what is an idea. art car? Um, it's just I painted all over my car. I've got art and poetry and paintings on my car. I'll oh, how wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> it's That's named wonderful. Star Yantra, and it's a um, it's an SL500 Mercedes. So it's actually something that you don't expect to see, and it doesn't have things glued on it. It's actually painted and professionally clear coated, so it looks very. Um, it was. It's very. I think it's a pretty beautiful car. It's all done in metallics, but it's that idea that you know, you don't. You're in your own world, so you're not aware of people paying attention to you in that sense. I but I want you idea. to I, I want you to share us another poem. We're talking about you and your poetry, <laughs> so please <laughs> give us something from the last session okay. as you start to kind of come into you and seeing yourself. Okay, I'll do that. Or actually, no, we haven't done a middle section one, have we? Um, yes, we did. You did. Yeah, you did we that. Did. Yes. Wait, are you tricking me? I am. Maybe <laughs> am. I'm like, did I? Did you do one? We've had. <laughs> I don't know. Isn't it great to laugh? Sometimes I start <sighs> laughing these days, and I just can't stop. I find things so entertaining. I, I'm the same way, and I actually during my radio, the radio shows when I go back to edit, I often have to edit out my laugh because it just goes on. I'm like, okay, and it's really great because I can see it in the sound wave. Oh, there's my laugh. Oh, there it keeps going. <laughs> <laughs> it's hysterical. I think it's a good thing yeah i do too we need to laugh i mean it makes you feel good doesn't it Mm -hmm. it's so healing to laugh yes it's so healing yeah Yeah. all right so i'm going to read to you a poem called seeing lake tahoe okay seeing lake tahoe for the first time made the cones and spheres inside my eyes leap and spin in excitement stimulated by the electric blue and the sharp bright harshness of the sun within the lake. Afterwards, things were never the same. I remember thinking maybe my eyes had to be brought to life like Sleeping Beauty with the Prince's Kiss. That weekend, I began to see things that had been background noise before, and there was no turning back. My husband's hand on another woman's ass, my daughter's limp hair falling to silver collarbones, sitting like a necklace someone loaned her. The neighbors' cigarettes smoked out on the back porch, always alone, accompanied by a glass of gin. In the morning, the long, hot dock calling me, suspended above the eye-changing lake, 
lifeguarding what was left. Everyone wanted to be blind. That sums up our conversation. (laughs) (laughs) And there you have it. Very, very well done. (laughs) Oh, I love it. That last line just really, there's not much to say to that. It's just, yep, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And we're getting close to time. So I want to make sure that we leave room for you to talk about how listeners can find it, find your book and find out more about you. Well, thank you. I would love that if they would do that. Uh, my book is available on Amazon, and um, I like to support small bookstores. So if you ask your bookstore to order it, that's possible too. And I also have a blog on WordPress. If you just Google LucindaWatson.com, you'll find me. And I post um, readings of my poems there. And um, I also have a listing on Poets and Writers, um, which is another place to find my work. So I hope that you, some of your listeners do look me up, and um, that would be wonderful. And what do you blog about? Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) What don't you blog about? Would that be a better question? I I used to write a lot about the state of the world, but it just got so depressing. So right. now I I, I, poke, I uh, post a lot of new work. Um, sometimes I post something that I've read elsewhere that I find interesting. Um, it's you know there's so many things happening in the world. I think people need positive stories as well. So I try to put some of those up once in a while. Right. Beautiful. Maybe share one more poem, but I'd also, um, you know, what, I don't, let me see. Let me just look at the time. Okay. I think we have time for another short poem. Okay. So, well, I'll end <clears throat> with a humorous poem. How about that? Yeah. This one's called Adoption. I remember when I was young and beautiful, but at the time, I thought I was fat and boring. Maybe my mirrors were bad or my astigmatism was uncorrected. Now I think I'm bewildered about what I did in my life and why I stayed where I stayed. I have written to the British royal family and asked them to consider adopting me. I think I would be a good addition as I know how to dress and have beautiful table manners and I feel really comfortable with a strict schedule. I would know instinctively how to back out of a room and how to occupy myself during the daytime hours. I would certainly never embarrass anyone, and I like the idea of knowing what was going to happen for the next 7,000 days. I love dogs, so I would fit right in. I look good in riding clothes, even though I'm 70, but the horse always knows I'm afraid of him. I don't think it's a lot to ask of the royal family because they need help and so do I. It's a very equitable solution for all. I don't need a title, though I would like a crown. I like the idea of living in a house with many other people who have no idea how many people are living in the house. It's the idea of all those bodies there that brings comfort and the prescribed nature of life, which is soothing. (laughs) 
<laughs> Did she write back? <laughs> I haven't heard. I'm on the waiting list. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I love it. Is there any advice, you, anything last thing you'd like to leave listeners with? Yes, I would like to leave listeners with the fact that you can never give up. If you have a book or something to say or a poem, don't ever think that you can't get it out there. You just have to keep sending out your work and sending out your work. And I sent out my manuscript to 21 different places, and Golden Antelope Press in Missouri, Betsy and Neil Delmonico, they, they, call, they wrote me the most beautiful acceptance letter and I was crying I I couldn't stop crying I was so Mm -hmm. amazed and you know it just shows you have to just keep at it and believe in yourself because it's really important for artists to get their work out I think yes I really do beautiful oh thank you so much what a pleasure it has been speaking with you today oh I wish you fabulous, fabulous well wishes on all your journeys, and I hope this book is widely read, and just keep up the great presence that you are. It's really a pleasure. Well, it's really a pleasure to talk to you. I'd like to be your friend. I'd like to be your friend, too. I think that that's going to have to happen. Well, that was quite the living room conversation with Lucinda Weber, poet and a really fascinating human being done so much in her life and her book the favorite really goes through her stories and I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we obviously did this time I didn't edit out all those laughs I figured why not we need more laughter on the air right so that about wraps up my show and I really hope that you are staying sane and finding ways to love yourself and those around you and remind yourself how human you actually are. As Franklin Roosevelt put it, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I've been hearing that a lot lately. So that's something to keep in mind as we move forward into the remaining days of this 2020 vision. Have a wonderful night and uh, wishing you well this holiday season. And I'll be back on the air with you in 2021. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolets and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.